Welcome to the Colossians Bible Study Podcast, where we'll dive into the book of Colossians verse by verse to see what truths God is communicating to us. This podcast is brought to you by Dylan Dodson, lead pastor of New City Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about New City, visit newcityrdu.com, or you can follow us on all social media platforms at at newcityrdu. Thanks for joining us. Now let's jump into Colossians. Welcome back to our Bible study through the book of Colossians. This is our last session together. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, through Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. And if you have made it till the end, you have made it to maybe one of the most, definitely the most controversial section in this letter of Colossians, and perhaps one of most Paul's most con- controversial passages in all of his letters. And so let's get into it. It's chapter 18, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 18. Now again, remember... All of Colossians has really been about two things, the amazingness and the uh, glory of Jesus and how He is over all things and He's the creator of all things, and He is the way to the truth and the life. He is the one that grants us salvation. And then we live in a way in response to the grace and mercy He has given us. So we don't live in a way to get things from God because God has has already given us graciousness and holiness and righteousness and the inheritance coming to Christ. We live in a way that represents that. Now, all of these things sound really great, Now Paul is going to give a practical example of what it actually looks like to love and to care for and to submit to one another, even when it makes us uncomfortable and even when we don't like it. And so like I said, this is a uh, pretty controversial section, but I think part of the controversy comes from a surface-level reading without understanding the first century context of what is going on. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit as we talk about uh, women, children, and slaves in this last section of Colossians. Here's what he says, again, trying to give a practical, real-world example of what does it look like to love and care for one another. It says this, starting chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So already, this makes us a little uncomfortable if we're being honest, right? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What is Paul saying here? And is this something in the, first, in the 21st century that makes us uncomfortable? Now, I think on a surface level reading, it does, until we realize what the culture that Paul is talking about and talking to and what he's actually saying, because I think Paul is saying something different than we might think he's actually saying. And so if you're in the first century, this would also have been radical to you and, and uh, maybe uh, cause tension, but in a different way than it does for us. So here's what's going on. What's interesting is that Paul doesn't tell wives to obey, but to submit as fitting to the Lord. Now, In the first century context, wives simply obeyed. Husbands and fathers were the head of the household. Legally, everything went through them, court cases. I mean, everything went through the husband. And so a wife, in most places, didn't have a lot of uh, rights or privileges. It's really whatever the husband says goes. And so you would expect in this this context for Paul simply to say, as a first century uh, Roman citizen, wives, obey your husbands, no matter what. But that's not what he says. He says, submit to them as is fitting to the Lord. Now, this is this idea. What Paul is saying is this idea of modest cooper- uh, a modest cooperative demeanor that puts others first, right? So, so love your husband in a way that is, fit, that is putting him first. Again, this is what Paul is calling us all to do, but he's talking about wives here in particular, that to love your husbands and to put their, your needs, his needs and his desires, and to love him before everything that you want. Now, again, this is true for everybody, husband, wives, children, friends, family members, co-workers, classmates. We're all supposed to do this, but Paul is particularly talking about the family dynamic here in this situation. Now, again, this is a radical idea to first century people, because what he's saying is that just because something is culturally acceptable, it doesn't mean a wife has to do it. 
Again, he's not saying a blanket statement, obey your husband. He's saying submit to your husband as long as it is honoring to God and loving and cultivates a home where Jesus' love can be present. In other words, what Paul is really saying here is that allegiance to Christ comes first, before your family and before your husbands. Now, again, these rise is significant because generally speaking, Christians in the first century were not uh, thought of fondly. Right? They weren't, they weren't uh, liked, and it's not just because they believed something differently, because, you know, Rome was a pretty polytheistic, a lot of places and a lot of different areas had different gods that they followed, but the problem was they were even seen as, as, as arrogant since they didn't, they didn't engage the culture the way a lot of other people did, because uh, everything you did it required sacrifices to the gods, to the trade guilds, to the sporting events. There's a lot of, really, paganism and worship of idols, and so a lot, Christians had to withhold themselves from a lot of things, and so they were viewed as kind of arrogant and different. And so again, Paul is saying for wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Now, this is also important for us to remember that women had no real formal education in the first century. And so to suggest that they in some way could be their own person was odd. Like, like they would be thinking, well, why does a wife who is uneducated, a woman, get to say what is fitting to the Lord or not? And yet Paul is seeming to say that wives, you actually have the ability to understand and to decide, is your husband being demeaning and uncaring, or is he, or is he being loving and caring the way Christ is being loving and cared, has loved and cared for us? And so he's saying women actually have a choice in the matter, which in the first century kind of would have seen almost anarchist. Like, what do you mean wives can tell their husbands what they will and will not listen to? But yeah, this is what Paul is saying. Also, it's important to remember that the, fa- the father and the husband had legal responsibility of the entire household in this time. So servants, children, extended family living with them, the father or the husband was kind of in charge of everybody. And so the, pro- the problem here is to open the door to someone other than the husband having total authority was an attack on the social order. Again, this is what part of the reason why Christians were seen as weird or arrogant, that they would tell their wives that you don't have to just blank, blank check, you know, blank statement, whatever your husband says goes. It's an attack on the social order. It's different, that, husband, or that wives can actually think for themselves. And if their husbands are asking them to do something that is uncaring and ungodly and unchristlike, what Paul is saying you shouldn't go along with it. So submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, that what your husband says does not go simply because he is your husband. And then he says this, talking to husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Now, remember, this is a letter. So, so sometimes when we read the New Testament, we kind of view it as like a theological essay. And of course, we can draw theology out, out of it, but Paul is, is talking to specific people with specific issues at a specific time. And so I think if Paul was writing a letter to the church, to a church in 21st century, his wording certainly would be different, but that's not what is going on here. He's talking to a specific context. And so when he says, husbands, love your li- wives and don't be bitter toward them, this also in a first century context would, have, would seem like strange counsel. You see, husbands in this culture didn't have to love their wives. The wives were essentially their property to do whatever they seemed fit with them. Um, Marriages, again, in this time period, were much more about children and legacy than love and sacrifice. Like, that's not what most marriages were about. They were about children and legacy and inheritance and your your family name and your name and passing things down. Uh, They weren't about love and sacrifice, certainly not at all really how we view marriage today. And so again, in Paul's time, what this means is that men did not have to be loving towards their wives, that they could be as harsh as they wanted to. And as legal, as the legal authority of the household, they could do whatever they wanted and nobody could really say anything or they couldn't get in trouble legally for maybe possibly even abusing their wives because whatever they say goes. 
And so again, Paul here is saying, and also if you're familiar with his passage in Ephesians chapter 5, he's calling men to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And how does he do that? By giving himself up for her. That even though you can, you can say and do whatever you want as a follower of Christ and a husband, that is not how you are supposed to act and that is not how you are supposed to behave. Again, Paul's goal here is this. He's showing us how to live within one's cultural framework in obedience to Christ. So this is the culture in which they lived, but here's what it looks like. Uh, wives, you don't have to do whatever your husband does just because he says it. And husbands, you need to love and care for your wives, even though legally you don't have to, because this is what Christ has done for us. So husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. And then he talks about children. He says this in verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate, uh, exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. So again, in this context, children are not viewed the way that they're viewed today. As, uh, they were viewed essentially like slaves. They were viewed differently, or sorry to say this, they were viewed not much differently than slaves, at least legally. Now, as they g- grew up and got older, things changed, but legally speaking, when you were a child, and again, in that first century, children were sometimes seen as a nuisance, something you put up with, someone that you, some, uh, you know, things that are people that uh, kind of did your work for you, especially if you were adults, they would help around the house. But legally, they were no differently than slaves. And so they were essentially the property of a father, even when they were grown and, and married until a father died. So children were even kind of seen as property. Even if you were grown and adult and married, have kids on your own, until your father died, you were in some ways still seen as your father's property. And so again, it's interesting here that just like Paul addresses women, which in the first century was kind of an uncommon thing to do, he's also addressing children. Why would he address children when they have no legal standing? But again, he's doing something here that is culturally strange, right? Since again, children have no rights and fathers can do whatever they want with them. Why is he talking to children? Well, here's why. Paul is encouraging children in the fifth commandment and for parents to care for the children well, right? He's encouraging children to love and honor and obey their parents, but at the same time for parents to care for their children. Not to, again, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Don't just beat things over the head. Don't treat them as property, but actually love and care for and nurturing them. What Paul is saying here is that it is pleasing to the Lord, not for social order, but to display a paradoxical self-denying love for others like Christ. So this is, again, goes against the social customary understanding at the time. And Paul is saying, again, that doesn't matter. What matters is that in your familial life, in your family life, which was the cornerstone of everything you did in the first century, you should live in a way that is self-denying and is demonstrating your love for others. Even if you don't have to, even if legally there's no one telling you you have to do it, it doesn't matter. That husbands should care for their wives, that wives should care for their husbands, that parents should love their children, that children should love and submit to their parents as long as their parents are encouraging to do things that are holy and righteous and glorifying to Jesus. Again, all of this is flipping the first century customs on their head, and Paul is trying to give a practical example of what does it look like to love and care for other people, again, even if legally you don't have to do it. Then he says this in verse 22, it says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done, uh, done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. 
So again, this makes us uncomfortable. Paul is talking to slaves here. Now, we're not going to get into the different dynamics between uh, the transatlantic slave trade and, and the slavery that Paul is talking about here. Suffice to say, it is extremely different. It is not the same at all, but also be honest to say, but it isn't necessarily something that people would want to do. Now, sometimes people would sell, them sla- sell themselves into slavery, or maybe oftentimes, because they had a debt to pay back. And so it's not the same as, you know, American slavery, but at the same time, it's not something that you would necessarily want to do. And so, again, Paul addresses slavery here. And so, like women and children, this is interesting. Why would he address slaves? Well, he's showing and demonstrating that slaves, as human beings, should have and do have the ability to think and feel and have responsibility. So no matter where you are in the social class or the social ladder, you have responsibility for your own life. So no matter who is over you, you first and foremost foremost, live and work for the Lord. Well, in other words, what Paul is commanding slaves here to do is radical, right? To love and to care for, even in spite of what their masters might say. Now, again, this makes us maybe feel uncomfortable, so I want to read uh, a quote by a scholar by the name of David Garland talking about this dynamic of slavery in the first century and what Paul is saying, and here's what he says. He says, most took for granted that slaves were morally incapable of deciding to do good. Again, lowest on the social ladder. They assumed slaves were helplessly controlled by their passions and steeped in villainy. Consequently, they needed to be handled as if they were witless children. But Paul treats Christian slaves as morally independent individuals, fully capable of Christian virtue. God will not overlook their wrongdoing just because they are slaves who are, who are supposedly not responsible for themselves. They are responsible for themselves. Being in the miserable condition of slavery and even being a victim of injustice does not excuse returning evil for evil or even half-heartedness for evil. So again, he's saying, you as slaves, you actually have the responsibility and the ability to live in a way that is, that is good and is pleasing, even if you find yourself in an unjust situation. Now, again, that being said, in the first century, we also need to remember this. Why doesn't Paul come out and ban slavery outright and say it's wrong? And I get that. And this isn't an excuse. This is just a to understand what's going on. In the first century, Christians could neither change or ignore slavery. I mean, they were not a political power at all. They were in the minority. This is not like America in the 21st century. There's no Christian coalitions or anything like that. They have no ability and no power to do anything. And so... Paul here, to be clear, does not sanctify slavery with these comments, but he does subtly undermine its very premises while encouraging obedience as an expression of a loyalty to the family or the group. But you can already begin to see, you know, Paul kind of undermining slavery itself here, because if we're supposed to love and care for one another, well, then how can we do that and have people who are viewed as less than than us? And so all that to say, Paul in this section is saying that slaves and women and children are not property to be managed, but people who have responsibilities and the ability to make decisions of their own. And again, Paul's encouragement here is that slaves will receive their inheritance just like all believers in God's kingdom. Also, this idea would have been offensive in the first century, that the lowest, the socially outcast, the lowest on the social ladder are just as equal and loved in God's sight and will take part in just as the same amount of inheritance as anyone else. Again, this is why Romans had a problem with Christians, because they are putting everyone on an equal footing and an equal playing field. And then lastly, he says this, chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So again, Paul is addressing the masters here, which is again radical because masters, just like husbands to their wives and kids, could do whatever they want. 
right? They, they don't have to listen to Paul. They're not under any legal authority to do what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying here that it, it is wrong for a master to be hateful and to be domineering and to be unjust to their slaves. Um, he's also, for Paul, again, he's, he, it's interesting to me that when you read this, Paul is saying that slavery is wrong here would be incomprehensible. Again, for them, for, if Paul were for out to say, hey, slavery is wrong, don't do it, it wouldn't have made sense. I'm not, I'm not, we can get in, we can debate, you know, whether he should or shouldn't have, but all that to say, like, that would not be a framework that people would have understood. And so instead of focusing on that, here's what he does. He brilliantly, in my opinion, shows the value of human life while changing the hearts and the minds of people, right? He's talking about the, the, the value of human life while changing the hearts and the mind of people, that everybody's equal. And at the same time, it's widely believed that the book of Colossians was written at the same time as the book of Philemon and circulated together. And if you're familiar about the book of Philemon, it's about Onesimus and Paul encouraging Philemon to uh, let his slave come back to him and then set him free. That's essentially what the book of Philemon is about. And so Paul doesn't come out outright here and say slavery is wrong, but the Colossians is coupled with another book where Paul is encouraging a slave owner to let his slave go free. And if you read those together, well, the slave owner would probably have no choice but to say, you know what, Paul, <laughs> you're right. As people would read this, they would begin to think, oh, wait, why are we treating people the way that we are treating people? Now, again, I, I would maybe give you one more just quote. I know this has been a lot of information, but this is just a, a hot topic in our culture today. Let me give you one more quote by David Garland about what's going on in this context. Again, he says it this way. The idea that women, children, and slaves could also act in an ethically responsible way is scarcely considered. Right? In the first century, no one would have thought that. The gospel in which there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, and we saw this earlier in Colossians that there is no distinction for those that are in Christ, um, recognizes each individual as a full person and is concerned to protect each person's rights, not to enforce his or her subordination. He says, wives are to be treated with love, children with understanding, and slaves as human beings deserving of justice in a time when slaves were not legally regarded as human. These commands also address wives, children, and slaves as responsible moral beings, full members of the body of Christ. The commands acknowledge the authority of the husband, parent, and master, but those with power must exercise it with love, sensitivity, and justice, and must be willing to take the role of servant, just as Christ did. Now, again, to be fair, uh, this text does not tell us how to order families today. Again, Paul is writing to a specific context about specific issues that they are facing. He's not saying, here's what the ideal family situation looks like. He's certainly not saying anything about what it should look like in our context in the 21st century. But we can read this and see <coughs> that every family member and every societal member, regardless of where you are, where you find yourself on the social ladder, must allow submission to Christ to, guard our, to guide our behavior. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. No matter where you are, no matter where you find yourself, even if you find yourself in an unjust situation, all of us have the ability and the responsibility to love and to live in a manner worthy of Christ. And that is what Paul is trying to say here. And so to close, um, I'll read the, we'll read uh, verses two through six to end our time in Colossians. Of course, if you have your Bible, you see Colossians actually goes all the way through verse 18 in chapter four, but those are some end greetings and as he, uh, greetings that he's talking about to fellow you know, believers that we won't get into here. We'll end with chapter two, uh, sorry, chapter four, verse two through six. And here's really the last kind of teaching of Paul's letter in Colossians. He says this, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving, at the same time, pray also for those that God may open a door to us for the world to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. 
so that I may make it known as I should. Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time, that your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Right? Again, Paul is talking about making known the mystery of Christ. As we saw earlier, mystery is not meant to be something that is hidden. It's meant to be something that is revealed, that he is going throughout the world. He's encouraging the Colossians to live in a way that this mystery, that the grace and mercy of God can be revealed to everybody who comes in contact with them. It's so all that to say, here's what we'll close Colossians with three main points from this section and the book as a whole. Number one is this, how we live matters. And not just in a theoretical or philosoph- uh, philosophical sense that we should think about what does it actually look like to love and extend forgiveness and to submit to one another, uh, to think of other people as more highly and better than ourselves? What does this practically look like? Not just to read a book and say, that sounds good, but think about the difficult relationships in our life, maybe a boss, a coworker, a classmate, a family member, a friend, a relationship. What does it look like to live in a way that matters and live in a way that actually um, exudes Christ's love for other people. Again, Paul's point is how we live matters, even as it gives these tough teachings about husbands and wives and kids and slaves. How we live absolutely matters. We also see that in order to do what God has called you to do, you must be who God has called you to be. So again, I think it's important to remember that these practical instructions about a familial unit in the first century is given at the end of the book, not the beginning of the book. So again, not, don't do all these things and then you're good, but dwell with Christ, follow Christ, uh, honor Christ, spend time with Jesus, be who, God has, or, uh, be who God has called you to be, and that will allow you to do what God has called you to do. Follow Jesus and he will impact your life. Don't do certain things in order to get him to love you. He's already displayed his lavish love for you and for me on the cross. And so in light of that, in order to do what God has called you to do, you must be who God has called you to be. And when you are that person, it'll make doing these things actually possible. And then lastly, we'll end with this. To be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. To be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. For Paul, again, in this section, when he's talking about uh, husbands having to do things that they don't have to do, or masters having to do things that legally they don't have to do. Well, the only way to do that and to do it consistently and well, to be like Jesus, is you have to be with him. Spiritual practices and remember and thankfulness, remembering who Jesus is. Again, Colossians is about the amazingness of Christ, how he's always been, how he always will be, that everything was created by him and for him, and that you and I are invited to participate in his kingdom, not because of us, but because of what he has done for us. And so again, thinking practically, what are the difficult uh, relationships and people and places that I find myself in my life, and what does it look like to be like Jesus in those situations? In order to be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. And the book of Colossians is all about the majesty and the gloriness of Christ, and Paul is talking about how Jesus invites us in, in to his kingdom, not because of us, but because of him. And when we see and when we dwell on the grace and the amazingness of Jesus, it impacts our hearts and our minds. And through the power of the Spirit, we can be the type of people that Christ has called us to be. To be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. And that ends our time in Colossians, uh, in this section, chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 6. Thanks again for joining us in our Bible study through the book of Colossians from New City Church. New City Church is a non-denominational church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information, visit newcityrdu.com, or you can follow us on all social media platforms at at newcityrdu.com.